My name is John Hendren, and this is episode 25 of BotCast. I can't believe that this is the 25th episode. I really didn't know, as I've said in previous episodes, where this little project might go. I started this around the, um, the Christmas holiday, the end of 2014, uh, was, had, was at home, had some time off, and decided, hey, why don't I get back into podcasting? And here we are on episode 25. I believe my goal is going to be 100 episodes, and I'm thinking, you know, we could go on and on and on. There are 1,100-some uh, works by Bach in the BWV catalog. Uh, that would be a, a major undertaking and would require me to do far more research than I probably have time to do. So the focus of this this podcast, if, if this is the first episode you're listening to or you've just listened to a couple before, uh, we're basically taking really interesting or good pieces by Bach. And of course, we have over a thousand to pick from because I really like almost everything Bach wrote. Um, But we're picking some favorites and we're picking ones that particularly I have multiple versions of in my recordings collection so that I can highlight some of my favorites, talk a little bit about the focus of the work, a little maybe history behind it, maybe some interesting things that I find when I listen to it to help you, the listener, kind of get into the particular piece that we feature. And the the featured piece for this podcast episode is BWV 1014. Um, I've decided that I'm going to, I'm going to do all of these works in a row. And so uh, as long as I stick to my plan, the next episode will be 1015. These are a set of sonatas for violin um, and keyboard, although we see that in different guises. Um, Some recordings treat the keyboard as a basso continuo, meaning that they added other instruments to it. And the keyboard, of course, is up for debate. Um, We just heard a version on the piano, obviously. that recording came from 1976. That's uh, not a new one. And that's Jaime Loredo, which uh, he's a pretty famous uh, violinist. Um, you've, you've likely run into his name before if you've been into classical music. Uh, and he, he partnered up with Glenn Gould. And this came out of the, the Glenn Gould Bach collection, uh, which, you know, I'd heard Glenn Gould's... Uh, uh, his partitas, I've heard his inventions and symphonias, I've heard a number of things that he's performed by Bach before getting the set, but this was one of those things where, gosh, I didn't know he recorded this and didn't know he he partnered with somebody else. And so uh, in in each of these episodes, I'm basically going to take two different versions back to back. Um, I actually really like these, and so I've collected uh, a number of different versions. And so uh, that's one of the ones we're going to listen to. Now, this happens to be among the set. One of my favorites, and the, it, the reason it's one of my favorites is for the very first movement. Now, the instrumentation is basically a two-part, okay? Keyboard, piano. If you think of what we've looked at in Bach so far, we haven't had this kind of duet-type texture, Right? We've had the trio sonatas for organ. We looked at those where there's three distinct parts. And we actually listened to a performance with 
um, you know, melody instruments with the Basso Continuum, doing a more traditional approach to the trio sonata. But it was clear that Bach was writing in three parts. Um, we have Bach solo works for, for the harpsichord. We have Bach solo works for the organ, um, which usually are determined by two parts with hands. Or when we get, of course, into fugues, we can actually discern four distinct parts. Maybe if he writes a four-part fugue or three parts in a three-part fugue. So uh, it's a little unusual, I guess, um, in terms of at least what we've explored so far to get a two-part texture. Now, Bach doesn't write a lot of music uh, in this kind of orientation. He leaves us some music for violin and keyboard. He leaves us with uh, flute music with keyboard basso continuo. Um, but this one's a little unique in that he specifies it's for the, the you know, the keyboard, the harpsichord would be likely the, uh, the smartest choice if we're being historically minded. Um, and so... If a performer adds cello to it or adds some other bass instrument, it's a little suspicious to me. Although I can't say that if a uh, performer uh, performers decide to do that, uh, even in box time, uh, for instance, if this had been transported, let's say, to London, and they said, oh, here's this German guy. Uh, okay, cello player, here's your part. Uh, that might have actually happened. Um, but I think the intent, if you if you look at the score and if you listen to these, more often than not, you're going to see this without an extra bass instrument. Because Bach really has treated this, even though it's a two-part, has treated this as a three-part texture, which is a little unusual. If we take a look at the works of Corelli, Corelli sort of is the gold standard of if you're going to go and choose a what is a Baroque, or even if you want to get specific, an Italian Baroque, or um, uh, you know, get down specifically where he, he worked in Rome. But if you want to get down to what the, the quintessential Baroque um, solo sonata would be, we look at Corelli. First of all, he's in the middle of the Baroque period, around 1700, he publishes this, and we, we believe that that was on purpose. Simply kind of cool to publish your big, big monumental collection um, at the start of the year in 1700, I guess. But it, what you're hearing in the background there is a little bit of one of Corelli's um, sonatas for violin and continuo. Um, there is... There's controversy about everything, right? We just don't know things. And I don't mean to make it sound like it's a big conspiracy or something. It's not that we say controversy. But people can't decide because of the way it was written in the, in the um, title page of this collection. Was it really intended to have a full basso continuo with multiple players? Or was it just for um, cembalo o cello? Uh, you'll see that written about this collection in particular, one or the other. And so people have done just about everything. We're listening right now to the Imaginarium Ensemble, Enrico Onofri. And I'm going to bring up the volume just a little bit so you can hear the, the way Corelli writes. This is the jig from, uh, this is the fifth sonata in the collection, Opus 5, uh, in the key of G minor.
So very attractive music, right? Very tidy, very nice harmonies. But the, what about the texture? There's there's two voices. Even though that they might employ more than one instrument in the bass, there's just two parts. It's a two-part thing. Now, if you're not used to playing, um, let's say the instrument is the harpsichord, and there we had, I believe, some organ. and um, Not sure what else was added there, but you got you got the left hand and the right hand to play with, and Corelli's not really writing out a right hand part. Instead, which was the what you had to learn if you're going to be a continual player, was how to read the bass line. You're, you're actually playing all the bass notes. But then on top of that, you were building out harmonies with your right hand, basically kind of mixing with chords. And there wasn't just one way to do that. That left, was left up to the creativity of the, of the performer. And by the way, this does not just relate to keyboard players. Um, cellists could re read um, the full line, add, add a harmony if you want, with more than one, um, more than one string. Gamba players could play chords. Obviously, organists, lute players, all those instruments where playing multiple notes isn't maybe as challenging. Uh, but you had to read what were called figures. They called it figured bass because if you saw, uh, for instance, a six and a three uh, above that, it meant put a, a note that's six steps higher and three notes higher above this note. And you would you would sort sort of if you knew what key you were in, you weren't necessarily always thinking six and three. You kind of knew that was a first inversion of the chord. Um, if one of the notes was meant to be played with a major note instead of the minor, for instance, if you had a sharp, that would mean to raise the um, raise the third note of that chord. And so you had to learn this almost like a tablature, if you will, um, above that bass line. And that would be the, the accompaniment. What's different in Bach's uh, collection of works for keyboard and violin compared here to Corelli is that he's writing out the right hand and the right hand isn't just playing block chords it obviously is adding a huge harmonic component to it but Bach is treating it as its own independent line which you know some people might think well that gives us a clue about maybe the way Bach would have realized continue I don't think so I think Bach really wanted to write a three-part texture here, and that's what he does. So getting back to BWV 1014, it's it's the first in a series of sonatas for violin and either harpsichord, keyboard, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I, I let you hear a little bit of the last movement, which was not unlike the Corelli, I guess. It's the fourth movement. Um, Bach chooses to write most of these in four movements. The, section, the exception is the last. Um, and so we have a slow, fast, slow, fast, adagio, allegro, andante, allegro. And that was kind of the ending, and it's in the key of B minor. Um, but as I mentioned, the first movement is really, I think, kind of cool. Now, we're going to listen first to the, the Gould version that we heard in the opening. And what's interesting, if you look at the music, is Gould, which he sometimes does, either really speeds something up or really slows it down. In this case, he's really slowing it down. So he's adding a few little extra figurations and notes in there, which isn't necessarily the best example to listen to if this is fresh for you. But um, go ahead and listen to it. And notice how the violin comes in, because you don't even know if your eyes were closed or if you were blind or you put, you know, you're just listening to a recording. You wouldn't know necessarily at the beginning that there's going to be a second player. 
he starts off with kind of writing this just for the keyboard, and then the violinist sneaks in. At least I think the violinist sneaks in. I think that's the way it should be played. When you start with a, a, a long-held note that can start from nowhere and just kind of build in, I think that's such a cool effect. And I think it's really cool that Bach chooses to do this kind of sneaking in, if you will, the violin part in the very first sonata. If you imagine if you're going to perform uh, multiples of these, or if you had a... Um, an orientation of, okay, this is the first and we're going to introduce new concepts here, um, which sometimes we think maybe these composers did and the way they ordered things. Uh, I think it's really cool that Bach gives us this effect, if you will, in the first uh, of the sonatas and in the first movement. So this is the opening to the B minor sonata BWV 1014 performed by Jaime Laredo and Glenn Gould. So, so Gould's playing around a little bit, and I will tell you, I don't think they really got this first movement right. Um, uh, I don't think the interpretation really really works too well, but uh, nevertheless, it's been recorded, and they had some ideas, and they put them together there. Those, those long notes on the violin, they're just excruciatingly long at this slower tempo. Uh, Gould starts playing the, the first part very short, right? Everything is very short. And we believe that, that Gould did some of that short staccato style playing because he was trying to imitate the sound of the harpsichord. But then in the in the second phrase there, he now is playing legato, which I'm confused. Is it are you playing it short? Are you playing it long? Um, I'm actually a fan of playing this opening movement a little what I would call squishy. Um, you know, if I was on the piano, I wouldn't necessarily put down the pedal. But when it's played on the harpsichord, you'll find some harpsichordists that try to separate the notes. And I, th I think it works better when you don't do that, when you're, uh, you wouldn't necessarily say legato, that's it's very close together, but almost legato, I think it works. And I think of the, if the textures, the sound of the, uh, of the harpsichord, the way it has that percussive attack, I think that still works to make the separation, which is, is kind of nice. Um, even though we don't have a cello here, it almost sounds like a cello part in the bass. Boom, 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 boom. And then we have the, the same kind of rhythmic motive. Um, the, melod the melody follows this as well, 
the bass line, but with chords, right? We have more than one note in the, in the upper right hand. And then the violin is supposed to sneak in, as I am telling you it should. And here, Jaime Laredo, basically, when it was his time, he just kind of sets it down. He wasn't real sneaky about it. Um, and so, not a big fan of this, uh, this opening number. I think they kind of ruined the, the effect that Bach gives us. I think it's certainly possible to do this well on the piano and, and the, the modern violin if you wanted to. But um, the one thing I will say is their balance was, was nice and appropriate. Um, uh, so that sets there, and we'll, we'll go back to some of the other movements. We're now going to listen to a version with the harpsichord and Baroque violin. And I'll tell you who the players are uh, after we listen to the opening. And we'll see if, if this group does a little better with the, the sneaking, sneaking in aspect that Bach writes for that opening long note for the violin. I think this rendition is beautiful. This is being performed by Stefano Montanari, uh, famous, I guess, for playing in um, uh, several chamber ensembles. He's also uh, the lead of um, D'Antoni's uh, ensemble, which name is escaping right now. Um, it'll come back to me in an inappropriate time. And we have Christophe Rousset on the harpsichord. Harpsichord has a very light, um, almost fragile character to it, um, and the violin is what it is. He doesn't quite sneak in from nowhere, but he he makes himself heard, and then he almost fades into the background, and then brings it up again. And to me, that that violin line speaks to how uh, the harpsichord part should be, because it's just this sort of almost like a rhapsody, like. You can feel the breathing, right, with the phrasing. And I love what they do with the phrasing. Dun, 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 dun. It's very natural, very... Um, to me, it just, it's a really good interpretation of that first movement. Um, and so this is... Um, to a little bit about the recording. It came out in 2006. And it came out on the Ambrosi label. And so this is... Uh, this is our second counterpart to listening to this. Um, just so we're looking at the times, they record this at 3.28, and uh, Gould was taking um, almost six minutes for this opening movie. So what make, makes Bach's music great? Great little melodies, great phrases, and then we get that in the second movement. So this one's uh, fast, and it really 
behooves us, I think, to pay attention here. It's a little easier to hear maybe of what's Bach's doing with that right hand, having a melody part and what they're doing with the violin. The violin in this recording really stays on top just because of the, I think, the acoustics. And so you have to try a little harder to hear the right hand um, taking up some of the uh, same motifs, uh, rhythm, um, same lines, because Bach's writing with some counterpoint here, uh, in the harpsichord part. What I do like about the sound of the harpsichord in this um, this whole set is that the bass line is a little punchy. Uh, the bass line's pretty heavy in the in the harpsichord, not too much, but it's 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 good enough that you really don't miss having an extra instrument reinforcing the bass part. So here again is Montanari and Rousset. So Bach wrote these big long notes for the violin in the first movement. He does this again, just holding a note for a while, which the violin can do, of course, very easily. And we could get into some of the um, techniques for the Baroque violin. Obviously, we're not doing a lot of vibrato. You may have noticed in the first movement that Montanari uh, evoked some, uh, what I would say, unusual ornamentation, uh, slow vibration, which I, th I think is great. Uh, he's, he's a little feisty in this opening movement, um, which I really like. And then what does the harpsichordist do? Harpsichordists can't sustain a note. And even though there's plenty going on, um, Rousset puts in trills there, uh, which would be a way to sustain that note. And so it's kind of just an interesting uh, effect when it goes back and forth that you, have a, you get a trill in the when the long notes presented in the in the melody in the harpsichord in the right hand, and then the violinist doesn't get it. Let's hear uh, what Gould and Laredo do with this second movement.
even though this tempo is slower, I think it still works. I noticed myself tapping my toe there as I was listening to it. I got a little, little groove going on there. And of course the pitch is a little different. They're playing a little bit higher because of the pitch change from the historical perspective to the modern. And the thing that I that really stands out to me when I listen to that is that constant vibrato in the violin. Not a fan of that. Don't like it at all. I almost wish I could say, hey, could you could you do that again and not not try to make the violin sound like it's singing? Um, I've just grown so used to hearing Baroque music on strings without that constant vibrato that I that I really don't like it. And I even find it in pieces where it's more historically appropriate to be annoying sometimes. Um, and there's there's lots of reasons for playing with vibrato, and it's you know, Laredo was brought up in a tradition that that's what you did. So um, this is by no means uh, historically informed. Uh, they knew something about the historical sound world that Bach wrote in. Obviously, they, um, you know, these guys aren't idiots. They, they know it was for harpsichord and for violin, and they're choosing to play it with their modern counterparts. And I think they are sensitive to the Baroque aesthetic, but for me, as much as I would love to hear Glenn Gould play the keyboard part, I really wish that vibrato wasn't going on in the right uh, in the right hand in the in the violin part. So that's that's my um, bias there. I think we're going to find in the fourth movement that there isn't so much of an opportunity to play with so much vibrato because the notes are going by faster, um, and that is always a um, a quizzical thing to me when you uh, take a quote-unquote modern violinist you're playing repertoire like this and you play the slow stuff with long-held notes the vibrato comes out and rears its head but when the notes are going so fast obviously um, there's not much vibration you can do as your fingers are moving and so it just kind of it's a very different sound and it always puzzles me when we get to a longer note or something that then we add the vibrato to it um, to me, it just makes sense that you don't add so much. Vibrato, like a, a ton of other techniques in the Baroque era, were th was thought of as an ornament. It was something special you added to something. And there is not one Baroque violin style either. So when I say things like this, it doesn't mean that everybody did the same thing. There were players exploring during this period vibrato during Bach's time. They wrote about it, and they were exploring it, and they were talking about the virtues, and there was people who said, yuck, that the stuff is not appropriate, and other people saying that's the appropriate. And so, obviously, what won? Vibrato won in the end. People liked it, but for my, my ears and my taste, which says nothing of what's right or wrong, which is my taste, I'm not a fan of a lot of vibrato, uh, what, no matter what instrument it is. Um, and I think as we move ahead in this in this series, perhaps, uh, we'll encounter some Baroque violinists who are applying vibrato, and um, I like it just as the same as here. I don't like it at all. So let's, uh, let's move on to the third movement, just give you a little taste of what that's like. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it, and then we'll finish, obviously, with the fourth.
So I think there's an interesting comparison based on what I just said, right? So you've got some notes that, that hold for a while, and Montanari does what I think um, any broke violinist, he, I don't know what I was trying to say, is he does it so well as a broke violinist. He sometimes adds ornamentation to the note at the beginning or the end, um, but he does a simple thing, which is to let the note swell. You know, just kind of mm, like you're going over a little hill or a little speed bump, right? It's just, it gets a little louder, a little softer. Um, that's actually a technique. They wrote about this in violin treatises that you take a long note and you you crescendo de crescendo, if we're going to use the Italian terms over that note. And Laredo hits the note. He's just vibrating. Nothing special with it. He just kind of glosses over it, which to me, you're losing some of the, the charm uh, that was inherently uh, part of Bach's music, but not written out. It was... And for me, it works. Um, we don't know if in in box circle that they were observing all those um, techniques written in the treatises, but we can only hope because I think it works to great effect here. And um, Gould kind of gets out of the way. He's tinkering. And this really, this third movement really is for the violin. The The right hand is playing just more of, of, of chord support here than having an independent melody or a dialogue with, with the violin. So let's let's start with um, Laredo and Gould for the fourth movement, and then we'll compare what we hear in the historically informed version with Stefano Montanari and Christophe Rousset. <laughs> So a little faster with that historically reformed version, a um, little lighter in some ways. Um, to me, far more satisfying performance. I can listen to both because it's great music. Um, but I definitely, uh, if if this were a match, I would I would go with the historically informed version. And not all of those are equal, of course. But uh, I do really like this release um, of Bach's sonatas for violin and harpsichord. 
Um, again, Christophe Rousset is the harpsichordist, and I don't, he usually does, you know, with, with chamber groups, uh, he's not always consistent. He has his own ensemble, the Talon Lyrique, um, but this is just a duo with uh, a fellow Baroque musician, Stefano Montanari, a little bit of an Italian-French collaboration going on there, and I think it works out very well. Um, Bach in this last movement is fully exploiting the right hand as an equal partner to the violin. And that may me one quibble you have with this release is that the right hand of the harpsichord, either naturally or the way it was, was captured, uh, of course, it's hard to capture a right hand differently from the left hand without doing some heavy manipulation um, in post-processing. So I think it's probably the natural acoustic of the uh, harpsichord in this case is, is a little light, as we noted at the beginning, and it the right hand has a hard time competing with the violinist for that second uh, melody spot. But Bach is exploiting counterpoint here to take the same theme, very catchy theme, very, it's what makes Bach great. He's got a very delectable melodic theme going. And then he plays with it and um, uh, basically passes it down to the right hand. And in addition, the left hand, the bass, has a very active role. And so um, while I said I really like the first movement, the last movement uh, it leaves nothing uh, nothing wanting. It's, it's a very um, nice piece of music. So a little long on this episode, but I want to introduce you to the series. I won't talk so much about the series as a whole as we move on. But this is the first in B minor of Bach's sonatas for violin and harpsichord. And hopefully you heard a few things maybe that you didn't hear before, that the right hand has a very special role in, in Bach's writing, uh, different from so many of the other, um, what we would normally think of as a duo, right? Just bass and instrument. Um, and here Bach fully writes out the right hand. My name is John Hendren. You're listening to BachCast. This has been episode 25. You can learn more about BachCast, about show notes, and um, we also have a website full of CD reviews. If you go to bieberfan.org, that's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. Thank you for listening.